0: You know, I talk about this every once in a while, and I want to mention it again real quick before we start. I, I, I deeply want to be a church that is committed to praying for each other. And we, we use those terms a lot. We use it with each other. Hey, I'll pray for you, whatever. And we don't really ever do it. Um, some of us are better than others, but most of us just use that as a token Christian slang to throw around with each other. When we started this process years ago, we we really began, as we opened up God's Word, to, to ask God to teach us. And we began praying, asking Uh, that we would pray for each other and and years ago i had a um, um, a a woman they've since moved but she came down after church one day and she said i need to tell you something and i i want to just tell you that it's sort of revolutionized my life and i said great well lay it on me and she said um every sunday we come to church my husband and i come to church and you have us pray for the person sitting beside you that person always Mm -hmm. is my husband and I have a deep resentment towards my husband. Um, I've got a lot of anger issues. I've got a lot of things that I blame him for, and I don't pray for him, period. But when you make me, essentially what we said, I began to pray for my husband that God would teach him. In the meantime, that God would also soften my heart. She said over the course of about six weeks, God, as she would sit there, she physically and kind of in her heart began to feel God slowly changing the way that she felt about him because she took those moments to pray for him and not be resentful. Now, that's not what's happening all the time, but part of this process for us is realizing that we fill this room This is not really about you all the time. It's not about me entertaining you or Don the band getting up here and singing songs that you like. But there are people in this place that are broken, that are shattered, that have have wandered in for the first time after 17 years of never going to church and have driven by for two Sundays in a row and parked and never got out of their car and left because they don't know how to come into church. And for the first time, they come in. And we want to be a church that's committed to saying, I don't even know if that person's sitting next to me, but I, I deeply want them to encounter God if they are. And maybe I know that person as intimately as my husband or my wife, or maybe it's a total stranger. But God, I want you to move in the people here. And so we're deeply committed to that. It's what we see happening in the New Testament church, this sort of deep involvement with each other. Well, James is writing this book to a bunch of scattered believers that are fighting like crazy. I mean, they are bickering and they are arguing. And James starts in chapter, or chapter or verse 1 of chapter 4 and he basically says, quit. Like, don't you understand that what you're doing is breaking God's heart? You are fighting and bickering and quarreling, right? And he's writing to address some really specific issues. And he moves towards the end of this chapter to the very personal. And he basically says, listen, your struggles don't end With just fighting, you have basically drawn lines of hatred in your heart towards each other. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, is the lines that we've drawn towards each other, the pride and the slander and the the ways that we speak against each other, the control that we desire to have, not over only our own lives, but over each other, and how to truly let go of those things and begin to live as a, a person or a people that said, God, you are my everything. And I want none of it. I want you to have all of it. So let's look at, uh, let's look at James 4, 11, and we'll read down through 17 together, and then we'll just kind of break it apart a little bit. So he says, brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city and spend a year there, carry on business and make money, why do you not eat? Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good that he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So this whole chapter is basically setting up these believers, these followers of Christ, not, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and sort of religious elite, but these followers of Christ, setting them up, basically saying, listen, you are destroying each other, the church, from the inside out. And so I'm going to address some very specific and very personal things that you've got to deal with. And he began with their infighting, and he basically said, look, the problem is not someone else. Right, James chapter 4, the verse 1 and 2, he basically says, look, the issue is actually you. You've fallen in love with the world, you're generally dissatisfied with your life, because God is not enough for you, and you've taken another lover. We explored that week one. And he goes on to say, here's how you remedy that, right? You submit yourself, you pray, you grieve, you mourn, you wail. You basically lay out, and what happens? God lifts you up. And this morning he ba- we're going to look at the fact that James basically says, now listen, we've addressed the root cause of those issues, but let me tell you a little bit more about judgment and pride and how it is ruining you and ruining the church. And none of us like to talk about it because judgment is, is not something that any of us think we do. None of us in this room think that we are judgmental. But we think everybody else is, right? Right? We watch political things, we watch the, you know, the pundits doing this, and we watch sort of people posturing about whatever, and we, we look at the posts they make online, and we look at all those things, and we're like, how can people be that way? But what James basically says, that there is a deep brokenness in each of us that leads us to a place of deep judgment that is breaking, not only breaking God's heart, but is tearing the church apart. And he says, listen, brothers, Christians, Do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law. Now, none of us judge each other, right? I mean, we've never walked in here knowing full well what's going on in somebody else's marriage or what kind of business dealings they've had. We've never driven down the street and looked at the guy standing on the corner and thought in our heart, hey, get a job, as if that's what we would do if we were homeless, right? we just go out and get a job, work really hard, save our money, and get off the streets. We've never looked at our sister and said, I can't believe she squanders all that money that mom gave her away, and mom never gave me a single thing. And we look at how she spends. We've never laid that judgment out on her right we've never looked at somebody else in this place by how they dressed whether it was in a fur or whether it was in rags and thought to ourselves something about that person we've never done that right we've never known that someone is secretly going through some kind of divorce and wondered how they could show their face here when that's happening we've never done that and what's more we've never actually told anybody else what we've heard right We've never spoken against somebody. We've never slandered them. We've never never leaned over and said to somebody else, did you hear what's happening with them? We've never been somewhere sitting and having coffee, talking about other people behind their back and the things that they're going through. We've never sat around and talked about somebody else's children and the mistakes they've made. None of us have ever done those things. Yet this is what James is saying to this group of believers. He's basically saying, listen, Christians, this group of people here, look at what you're doing to each other with your words. Your judgment and your slander and your speaking against are breaking God's heart. And I think about this and I say to myself, "Why not? I'm not judgmental. I mean, I love everybody, right? it's not true i judge everybody else based on their actions and what they do and i judge myself based on my intentions i meant well i tried the truth is is that we have to truly begin to understand what's happening in our lives before we can truly get over our judgmental heart the problem is we have a very short memory as followers of christ most of us have a really short memory we have totally forgotten where we would be without Jesus. Now think about your life for a minute. Maybe your life is a train wreck this morning. I have no idea. But I think about where my life was going and where I would have been without Jesus rescuing me. And I did nothing on my own to earn or deserve any of God's movement to save me from my own destruction. And I'm not talking about horrible things. I'm just talking about the fact that my selfish, me-driven, materialistic, disastrous life was heading down a path, and God interrupted that over no doing of my own and rescued me from certain sin, death, and destruction. And I did nothing. And most of us have forgotten where we would have been without Jesus' divine intervention in our lives. And we look around at the people around us, and we pass this movement as if we have somehow done something, right, to put ourselves up on this moral high ground, as if that moral high ground was a place we let ourselves. And I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said, Hey, Trev, I don't know, you know, you heard this or know this, and I always... As if we have the place to stand. I mean, guys, my life is a nightmare. It's a disaster because I am a sinful, broken person. And every single one of us in this place is the same way. This is what James is saying. He's going, Who are you? Who are you? Listen to how he puts it. He says, Who are you to do this? Right? There is only one lawgiver right, that when you do this, right, you stand in the place of that lawgiver. He's the only one able to save and destroy. But when you judge your neighbor, right, when you judge your neighbor, amen, you are speaking against the law itself. So when we judge the people or people around us, we slander, Right, which nobody likes to use that word, but the moment you say something negative about somebody else to another person, you're slandering them. Not just publicly. You don't have to go on Facebook and write, so-and-so is a nasty person and do whatever. I mean, the moment you just speak negatively about someone else to another person, you are drawing that person in. He says, listen, when you do this, you are speaking against the very law of God. And who are you? Only God can save and destroy, Right? We have such an inflated view of ourselves. Like, I have the right to pass my judgment on that mom and her four kids and whatever they're doing. Like, I have the right to look across this aisle and think what I think about that person, the career path they chose, or what they're doing. I forget that what Jesus has done for me is rescued me and loved me with a ridiculous, indescribable, and undeserved grace, and he calls me to love people with that same truth. So if that's how Jesus loves and sees me, loves and sees you, that is how as followers of Christ we are called to love and see not only each other but the world. We have a short memory. Jesus loves you in spite of all of your disastrous choices, even the ones you made last night. And he wants you to love people in that same way. James says the beginning of letting go of your self, your pride, stepping into this full submission to Christ, is letting go of that inflated view of yourself. That pride that just says, that judgment that just says, I'm a little better because I didn't do this. We've got to let go of that short-term memory and begin to realize that we are all one scenario away from the one thing we think we could never, ever do in our lives. I had a seminary professor one time that kind of went through this with us, a philosophical theology class, and he said, listen, you're the perfect situation away from doing what you think you'll never do. You think you'd never kill anybody? Put yourself in the perfect situation. You walk up on someone attempting to, you know, some kind of awful situation in your family. You think you'd never commit adultery? Put yourself in the perfect situation. You think you'd never steal or embezzle? Put yourself in the perfect situation. You are one situation away from doing. Why? Because we are sinful to the core. And yet somehow we keep this inflated view of ourselves as if, well, not me. The only reason we have is because Jesus has lavished on us. The Bible tells us that every gift, everything, every breath is from him. So, the very fact that we woke up and drew breath this morning is because God allowed it. Right? So, James goes on to say this. He goes on to say, Now, listen. All right? Listen, those of you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then. Vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. James is basically setting a a, a category for a me-centered life versus a Christ-centered life, right? The me-centered life says, hey, we're going to go and we're going to move here and I'm going to do this and I'm going to make money and I'm going to start a business and I'm going to do this right? That's the me-centered life. It doesn't sound terrible. I mean, those are decisions we all make. I'm going to move towns. I'm going to take a new job. I'm going to make money. I'm going to hold this career. I'm going to move this. I'm going to play kickball, whatever it is. Like, I'm going to do these things because the world and stuff around it revolves around me and my decisions. And so we live in this category that says, I'm going to do this or I have done this. And we boast about our ability, right, to exercise those kinds of decisions that doesn't sound terrible and it's not necessarily except for the fact that it is all centered and hinged on me i will i'm going to i can i shall boom 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 down the line and what james says is there's a difference in that in the christ-centered life and the christ centered life actually says if this is the lord's will we will live and do this or do that It's a minor change in wording but it's an incredible change in theology and philosophy of your life so god instead of what i want what is your will instead of deciding that i'm going to take this class or i'm going to take this job god where do you have me where might you be moving me to Where might you might be directing my life to? How do I say yes to you, even if it doesn't fit inside my paradigm of pleasure? How do I say yes to you? Because it's a different set of questions we ask. So instead of saying, hey, I'm going to take a job. I'm going to find the perfect job that pays the right money in the right part of town, with the right transportation, with the right whatever, whatever, whatever. We say, God, where might you be at work? Where might you have me? Where might you be leading me and my family? Where might you be preparing a way for me to create an influence? Because I want what you want more than I want what's comfortable. This is probably one of the most difficult exchanges we will ever make as followers of Christ. as saying, I'm going to lay down my desires and inclinations to say, Jesus, what do you want? Because secretly, we are all petrified of that. We are all petrified that Jesus is going to look at us and say, get up and move to Africa. And then we're going to be like, okay, I'm going to pray about it for 12 years. Get back to you. We're petrified because we know that if we just sort of do our Christian thing and try and live correctly, we could still control this part of our life without fully saying, Jesus, what do you want? Because we all know what he wants, and it's the exact things that we don't want to give up. So why ask questions we already know the answers to? So we don't. But we sort of token dabble in praying for things, knowing full well what we deeply desire are the very things that Jesus is calling us to let go of. And that will forever and always be the case in your life. I promise. The things that you desperately want to hold on to, that you are petrified of releasing control of, are the things that Jesus will always be calling you to let go of. And you will live in a constant tension and restlessness until you can come to a place where you say, it's not what I want. I don't care about the city. I don't care about the money. I don't care about whatever. What I care about is you and saying yes to you. I have a dear friend and his family, and and their, their, their motto, their life motto is, Jesus, wherever, whenever, whatever. And I look at them and I say, amen. But I don't know that I'm ready to do that. Because wherever and whatever and whenever, I don't know that I'm really ready to follow wherever that leads. But Scripture paints this picture that Jesus is not going to lead us off the edge of a cliff right? He's leading us to his glory and for his movements. And when you can finally release control and the fear that drives us towards control and say, Jesus, I want what you want, it is the most liberating experience of your entire life. And James says, you're fighting the Lord for control, right? But here's the kicker of all this. Listen, he says this. He says, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So here's a deep secret that everybody knows but nobody wants to say out loud. You have absolutely zero control over anything. All right? Now, we we can prepare, and we can make arrangements, and we can save money, and we can do things, right, to better prepare for tomorrow, but we can't control tomorrow or anything about it. In fact, we can't control what happens when we walk outside this door, and when you try and cross the street. We cannot control any of life's movements. We have zero control we don't have any inkling as what will happen tomorrow, yet we stand and we boast about our ability to make choices that affect our lives, like I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, yet we don't have an idea if the sun's coming up, if Jesus coming back, if we're going to even make it back to our house. Of course, we don't want to talk about that out loud because it's sad to think about, but it's true. And just because it's hard to say does not make it less true. You cannot control what is going to unfold around you. And you can't even really control what's unfolding within you. Because if we could, we would all do the thing that Jesus is calling us to do anyway. But we fight him on it. We've got this intense sort of fight spiritually with the Lord. And that's what James is saying is that, listen, why are you fighting for what you can't even control anyway? Like, if this is the God of the universe that created everything in the stars, the trees, and knows every moment of every time, as scripture says, every breath that you will breathe, every hair on your head, and everything in the future, because God is all knowing, and you don't know what happens when you walk out the door in 20 minutes, we are going to fight that God for control. It sounds ridiculous. He not only created me, but he has a plan for me and knows it, and I fight him over it because I want what I think is comfortable and safe. And James is saying, it's ridiculous. We don't have any idea what's going to happen tomorrow, so why not lay our lives at the feet of the God who created the tomorrows? He said it's the most freeing thing ever to let go of tomorrow. Most of us have allowed our fear over the future to seize a large part of our life. Anxiety, a lot of those things are driven financially. A lot of those things are driven relationship-wise. I don't know if I'll ever get married. Am I going to stay single forever? I don't know if I'm ever going to make more than X number of dollars. I don't know if I'll ever pay off all this debt. Like, we are seized with the fear of what comes next. What if I get cancer? What if a loved one gets sick? What if these things happen? And we live in these deep, seized fears. What James is saying is, the same principle is true. We don't have any idea. So we live in the moment that we've been given, and we make make the plans that God is calling us to make in the correct categories. And we don't allow fear to seize us, right? Scripture is full of that idea. Quit storing up for yourselves things that moth and rust and stuff destroy. It's all God's anyway. Your life, your stuff, everything about it belongs to Him. As a follower of Christ, you are no longer yours, but you are His. Like, let go and quit being kind of seized in this grip of tomorrow, but be free from that and live today. Most of us have grown up in families where we wrestle deeply with time people. Not enough time in the day. Too many activities. Too many stuff. I had a dad that worked you know, 16, 17, 18 hours a day. He died when I was 22. What I wouldn't give for more time, but he worked so that we could have. So that we could do. So my brother and I could play sports and do all these things. And he worked hard. But he worked a lot for tomorrow. He worked so that we could have down the road. and What I wouldn't give to give all those moments away just to have more time to live in that moment. I was telling somebody today, you wake up one day and, and your, your kids are 13, right? Or you look up and you're, you're standing on the barrel of 30 going, what? 30? I'm like going to die now. Like what happened? Like a, like a leg falls off or something, Right? We live in these moments, right? Because no one here is over 30. I'm not. We live in these moments that just, we haven't seized and given in to the fact that we've been given this amazing, beautiful, incredible gift. And you know what that is? It's this very moment in time. There will never be another one like it. And yet we live in fear of what's to come. This is it right here. We will never in this moment together be gathered just like this ever again. So who'd you meet? Whose hand did you shake? Whose story did you listen to? Were you too busy worrying about what comes next to realize there was a broken heart sitting here that is dying? And you're worried about where to go to lunch instead of saying, God, maybe you want me to speak to this person. The me-centered versus Christ-centered life says, God, who did you put me next to in church today? Did I learn their name? God, where did you leave me at work? Who's the person in the cubicle? I hear their story. And then I'm going to wrap everything up with this, because this one really jacks me up. Verse 17. Anyone, then, who knows the good that he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. We tend to think that sin is really tied to behavior, right? Right? I mean, we know that our mental things are sin, and we know that things that we think are sin, but we really, the real bad sins are tied to behavior, right? They're tied to the murder, you know, smoking crack, or whatever your your sin is, right? That's real sin. But the things that go on in my head, those aren't like real sins. I mean, I didn't do anything. But what James is saying is that if God has placed something in your heart that he's calling you to do, and you don't do it, it's disobedience, and disobedience is sin. So what is God calling you to? Even the simple things. Hug your wife. Spend time with your kids. Pull your car over and talk to that person. Learn their name. Stick around a few minutes and spend time listening to the sort of long, drawn-out story from that person. To quit making excuses. To quit panicking about tomorrow and live in this moment. Whatever those things are, when you know that God is calling you to it and yet you don't do it, James says, it's sin. It's sin. And I'll tell you why this really messes me up. It's because it's not necessarily the big things that I always wrestle with. It's the tiny ones that I don't want to deal with. And those are the ones the Lord just keeps going, Trev, that's it. And I ignore it because it's not really changing much, not affecting anybody. Those fears, those insecurities, the sort of, broken self-esteem issues I have that I know that God is calling me over that I refuse to let go of for whatever reason it's sin and it, and James tells us in that first part that when it's sin it, break God, it breaks God's heart in fact I'm having an affair with the world because I choose it over God so what is the Lord calling you into or calling you out of maybe it's time to put some reality in there say God I don't want to live this way anymore right I'm going to release my judgment because I want to have a a memory that remembers who I was and who you made me to be. That I'm nothing without you. I want to let go of myself, my me-centered life, and and submit to a Christ-centered life that says, Lord, where do you want me? Where are you leading? What are you doing? I want to let go of my fight for control over tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen, but you do. And I trust that. Right? I want to live there. And I want to come to a place where I just say, This is the moment you've given me right now. I don't know if I get another one. I don't know if I'm going to get another moment to talk to my mom. So why am I holding this grudge? Why am I so angry? I don't know that I get those moments. And so if you're calling me to live in that freedom and that forgiveness or that whatever, I'm not going to put it off any longer because putting it off is sin. Or if you tell me I'm beautiful and you tell me I'm amazing and I look in the mirror and I tell myself something else to lie. I'm living in sin. I've got to begin to believe those truths. Whatever those things are, begin to live them. Letting go of tomorrow and living today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these moments that are true in Scripture that sometimes don't always feel like they apply to us or we kind of wish they don't, but God, the truth is, is that It's not necessarily the giant things that we all wrestle with. It's the small things. It's the fears. It's the the whispers of the enemy that he knows exactly what to say exactly the right and wrong time. It's the things that I believe over you. Yet you reassure my heart and I I still don't believe it. You comfort me and I still live in anxiety. God, you rescued me Yet as a people, we still look at each other with frustration and judgment and slander. And as a church, we're the worst. God I pray that you would convict our hearts as we think about what it truly means to let go, to let go of ourselves, our inflated view of ourselves, to let go of our pride, to let go of our fear of tomorrow, and truly just say, "God, you get all of it. You get my money?" You get my children. You get my my relationship status. God, you get my work. Lord, you get my stuff. God, you get my my desire. You get my fears. You get all the things that I have. You get them. They're yours. I want to let go of them to release them to the God that is in control of all things and that knows all things and that loves me beyond measure why would I not want to turn everything over to you? Whatever the Lord is calling you to let go of, I just ask you as we we close in worship to just let the Lord bring those things to your heart. And as you sing and as you worship, just go through the action of trying to release those to Him. Just cut them loose. As you sing to the God that has rescued you and redeemed you, and promise never to leave you nor forsake you. Let go of those things that you know He is speaking into your heart to turn loose of. Let's stand together and close our time in worship.